Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, I pray that God will richly bless us today as we focus on his word. Uh, <clears throat> before I turn to my message, uh, let me just um, say a word of uh, explanation as to why I'm preaching to you through Zoom. I would much prefer to be on campus, but um, I had COVID diagnosed maybe 10 days ago, and yesterday was my first day to be allowed back on campus. But I've got this cough, and um, if I'm going to cough my guts out, I'd rather do it here in my basement uh, uh, over uh, my furniture rather than over you. So just a, a word of explanation. I was asked to speak for 10 minutes for our scholarship symposium, and that's what I prepared for. So um, I've got a 10 minute talk, but I'm going to talk a little slowly and that will make it into a 20 minute. So, um, yeah, before we turn to scripture, uh, would you mind if I offer a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that it will speak clearly to us. We walk in darkness without your revelation. And so we pray that we will humble ourselves. Speak through me now, Lord. Give me the words that I need. Give me the confidence that I need to communicate clearly. I pray in your name. Amen. So my um, passage this morning is a short parable from Matthew chap uh, Mark chapter 4. And the reason I chose this parable, uh, it's not a very good reason. I chose it because for many years I felt very, very sorry for this parable. And the reason I feel sorry for this parable is that it's been given the cold shoulder by Matthew and by Luke. Neither of these two evangelists, inspired as they were, include this little parable from Mark chapter 4 in their Gospels. So it's there in Mark 4, but it's not there in the equivalent of Matthew or in Luke. For some reason, they excluded it. It's the only parable from Mark not to be included in the Gospel of Matthew. And that raises the question as to why. Why have this hands-off approach to this short parable? It's a parable which you very rarely hear spoken about. Very rarely is it preached on. We're familiar with all the other parables in Mark 4, the parable of the sower, the parable of the seed, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable. These are familiar parables, but when it comes to this little parable, for some reason, it's been isolated and ignored and neglected. And uh, while I forgive Matthew and Luke for not including it, I would love to know why they have avoided including it in their gospel. Let me read it once more in your hearing. Verse 26, Mark 4. Jesus also said, the kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle, because the harvest has come. Before I unpack the parable, uh, let me just return to this question. Why would Ma Matthew not include this parable in his gospel? 
And um, one suggestion is, is that Matthew uh, sees this little phrase, he does not know how, and he feels uncomfortable with this. Some scholars, and maybe Matthew included, interpreted the farmer, the one who sows the seeds, as a reference to Jesus. Earlier, we have the parable of the sower, and a very common reading is to assume that the sower is Jesus preaching his word, sharing his word. So maybe Matthew felt uncomfortable with associating this idea that the sower does not know how with Jesus. Other scholars suggest that we shouldn't read the sower as directly relating to Jesus. We do elsewhere have in the Gospel of Mark, we have evidence that Jesus's knowledge was sometimes limited. Uh, if we turn over to chapter five, we have the story of the girl restored to life and embedded in this story, we have the woman who had a hemorrhaging of blood for 12 years, who came up behind Jesus in a crowd, the disciples are there, and she thinks, if only I can touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. Verse 28. And so that's what she does. She touches his clothes and Mark notes, verse 29, that immediately her hemorrhage stopped. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now, Jesus doesn't know who he's healed, but immediately he's aware that power has gone forth from him. And so he turns around and he asks this question, who touched me? And the disciples respond, you can see the crowds pressing in on you. How can you say, Lord, who touched me? And he looked around. So he's searching. Yep, He's just healed someone, but he doesn't know who it is. He searches, looks around to see who had done it. And then the woman takes the initiative. Verse 33, knowing what had happened to her, she came she in came fear, fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And at that point, Jesus tells her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So in Mark's account, the woman comes, touches Jesus. She's immediately healed. And then Jesus needs to find out who it was that touched him. If we flip over to Matthew 9, where we have his equivalent, we find a very different account. Matthew has left out this whole searching of Jesus. In Matthew 9, verse 18 on, we find the same account. And Matthew has shortened it. Here, the woman comes up behind Jesus and touches the fringe of his cloak. Verse 21, for she said to set herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. At this point, she's not healed. In Mark's account, she's already well. But now Jesus turns around and seeing her, says to her, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And at that point, she's made well. In Matthew, Jesus knows exactly who it was that touched him. There's no Jesus looking around, searching. Who was it that touched me? I felt the power going from me. No, in Matthew, Jesus 
has 100% knowledge of what was going on. He knows exactly what happened. And this was no involuntary healing. He heals the woman after he turns and addresses her. There is no questioning of who touched Jesus. So maybe Matthew has removed that section from Mark's account. If he is using Mark as a source, because he feels uncomfortable with this picture of Jesus who has to search out and find answers to his question. We have a Matthean Jesus of full knowledge, no lack of knowledge on his part. And so it's easy to speculate that maybe for the same reason he avoided including this little parable in Mark 4 in his gospel. This parable, which we might, we don't have to, but we might infer is talking about Jesus, where he does not know how. Maybe he also feels a similar unease with including this parable for a similar reason to why he altered the account of the, uh, the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage. So let me now take us through the parable in a little more detail. And then I will share with you two lessons I would draw from it. The parable is structured as a chiasm. It starts off by looking at the man. It then moves to the seed, then moves to the ground, back to the seed and back to the man. So let me just go through and just talk my way through the parable. So Jesus, he says, the kingdom of God is as if. And I think rather than identifying the man simply as the kingdom, think of the kingdom as the interaction between the man, the seed, the farmer and the seed and the ground. It's that interaction which is what the kingdom is like. And so we start off with this description of a farmer, anthropos, a man who goes out and scatters seed on the ground. He's sowing, he's doing his regular activity, and he would sleep and rise night and day. Some take this as a description of him going through his regular farming activities. He's diligent, he works, he puts in the hours, he rises night and day, and he goes out and he tends his farm, we may infer. Then we shift to the seed, verse 28. The seed is described as sprouting and growing. Up it comes. And this growth is not dependent on the farmer, for the farmer does not know how. He doesn't have any miracle grow, any wonder fertilizer, uh, some, some secret to his success to make the seed grow. No, the seed grows and the farmer does not know how. We then shift from the seed to the ground. Verse 29, the earth produces, it, in Greek, kapophore, it brings forth this fruit from itself, automate, from itself. We get the word automatic from this unseen. The ground produces of itself. The seed cannot grow on its own. It is dependent upon 
the ground and the ground produces produces out of itself and then we come back to the seed the seed is described as growing first the stalk then the head then the full grain in the head uh, here we have it coming up and developing into a mature plant and then we return to the man to the farmer when the grain is ripe the farmer recognizes the state of the grain and he at once goes in with his sickle because the harvest is come he knows he can observe he can tell at what point the harvest needs to be brought in so there we have this little parable moving from a man who does his part to the seed which grows, to the ground which makes its contribution, back to the seed which develops into full maturity, and then we have the man making his final contribution. And from this short parable, I would share two lessons. The first lesson is that we operate without full kingdom knowledge. We operate without full kingdom knowledge. The seed grows, the land produces, and the man does not know how. I would suggest to you this morning that we need to rediscover a healthy awareness of the limits of human knowledge in relation to the kingdom. This impacts how we understand our purpose as a seminary. It impacts how we understand our approach to our studies, to our scholarship. We operate in a knowledge-based culture that assumes that knowledge is, theoretically at least, uh, unlimited. That everything is ultimately knowable as long as we put in the time and the effort. As long as we study hard, as long as we use the right techniques, we will find answers to all our questions. We live in a culture which has given us these assumptions. We simply assume that when we have answers, we can find answers to our question. And I would suggest that at its best, this drives us to study and to find a deeper understanding. But at its worst, it can result in a certain intellectual hubris. This parable warns us against such an attitude to knowledge as it relates to the kingdom. It suggests a need to recognize the limits of our knowledge. The kingdom grows and we're not sure how. It may well be that one of Jesus's main goals when he was teaching the disciples was not just to increase their knowledge as to who he was and the nature of the kingdom, but one of his main goals was actually to recalibrate their expectations of what they could know. Sometimes he was actually trying to reduce their knowledge levels. An example that comes to mind is Matthew 24 and 25, the eschatological discourse where Jesus is telling the disciples what their future holds. And in these two chapters, five times Jesus tells the disciples, you do not know the day or the hour. He, I, the Son of Man will come at a time you do not expect, like a thief in the night. 
You simply don't know when it's going to occur. In these two chapters, which often we read as Jesus giving them lots of knowledge, what Jesus may actually be doing is actually reducing their certainty in their own understanding, actually reducing what they can know, setting boundaries to their knowledge. Reducing what we know can have great political importance. Hannah Arendt, in her 1951 work, The Origins of Totalitarianism, she asks why it was that the early 20th century history of Europe was dominated by totalitarian states, the National Socialists in Germany and Austria and communist regime in the Soviet Union. And she suggests that prior to the rise of these totalitarian states, there was a shift in European culture away from stable agricultural communities where people lived out in the, in the country with people who they knew, who challenged their beliefs. And instead they flooded into the cities as the economy industrialized and we had the rise of loneliness. People were now units of production on their own, nameless faces in large industrial cities. And she said that within, she says that within this climate, people were vulnerable to totalitizing explanations of their situation. Ideologies would be offered that made sense of their loss of identity. And these ideologies would give them a new identity, which they were vulnerable to taking on destructive identities uh, because they were in a state of loneliness. Now, we, when we look at our own days, we are actually moving through a similar uh, experience. More and more of us experience our social life online. That's been the effect of the lockdowns. And as we live our lives online, it makes us vulnerable to ideologies that come around with a universalizing tendency. As we become more and more lonely, isolated from each other, our culture has become susceptible to those who offer universalizing knowledge, easy explanations, clear identities. We need to ensure that Christianity does not adopt these totalitizing qualities of these other ideologies. And I would suggest for this reason, we need to listen to this parable. The farmer, he does not know how. It may be that as we come to seminary, as we study, as we have a whole series of questions, we want to find out how this works, how this operates, how it is that we can grow our church, how it is that we can grow the kingdom, that actually some of the answers may simply not be available to us. It may be to protect us that we do not know how. So my first lesson I would draw would be this, is that we operate without full kingdom knowledge. The second lesson I would share with you this morning is that even though we operate without this full knowledge, we still 
need to work. We don't back out and say, well, if I can't understand everything, why try? Why bother? Not knowing how the seed grows, not knowing how the land produces automatically is no reason to disengage from regular farming activities. The parable does not justify a quietistic theology, a disengagement. I will only work if I fully understand how it works. The farmer still sows, the farmer still goes out about his routine, rising and going to bed. He still harvests the grain. Here at the seminary, we shape followers of Jesus to be diligent in their service of the kingdom. Our contribution is limited and we know it. The farmer can't explain how the seed grows. He can't explain how the ground produces. Nevertheless, we believe that producing the next generation of farmers who day in and day out faithfully work is an activity worth pursuing. Farmers who can handle not knowing how one of the core activities they contribute actually works. They recognize that there is a mystery to their work that they will never understand. The, great, the kingdom is greater than the sum of their labor. In terms of pastoral formation, I would suggest that this understanding makes us kinder and less overbearing pastors, recognizing the limits to our knowledge. And so in closing, today I would make this appeal. I would, make, I would appeal that we consider our studies, our scholarly endeavors at the seminary, that as we consider these, that we give thanks to God for the knowledge that he has given us. The farmer knows he needs to sow. He knows he needs to rise and go to bed. He needs to look after the fields. He knows when the harvest comes. So we can thank God for what he has revealed to us. But we can also thank him that he sets limits to our knowledge, that he has never promised full revelation. And maybe this is to protect us. Maybe this is to protect us from becoming overbearing, hubristic in our full knowledge. No, there are simply things which are beyond our knowledge. May we also thank him for the lessons that we learn in discipline, rising and going about our activity, even with incomplete knowledge. And this is my prayer, that here at the seminary, yeah, while we value knowledge and we thank God for his revelation, that we will pursue lives of discipline, even in a context where we do not have full understanding. My prayer is, is that we will give thanks to God for a harvest, even if we're not sure how it came about. This is my message I would share with you this morning. May God bless us as we meditate upon his word. And at this point, I would invite you to bow your heads as we pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have called us to be followers of yours. 
faithful followers, men and women dedicated to your kingdom. We thank you for the knowledge that we can uh, develop and enhance while we study. But we also thank you, Lord, that you set limits to this knowledge, that the kingdom is altogether more mysterious than we can ever understand. And for this, we give you glory. We give you praise. We thank you that there is space in the kingdom for you to operate your miraculous power and guidance and sustenance of your kingdom. To you, Lord, be the honor and to you be the praise. And may we be faithful in our service. This is my prayer this morning. In your name. Amen.